Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. This week coming at you is a interview with Sean Holsknecht, who is the co-founder and CEO of Colovore, a high-density data center owner-operator based in Santa Clara, California. Their data center literally sits on a street called Space Park Drive, which anyone in the Bay Area is very familiar with because there are it's probably close to 100 megawatts, if not more, on just that street alone with the Silicon Valley Power uh, major station right around the corner. So very, very cheap power in uh, Northern California, which is hard to come by. Uh, Sean has a great background as a engineer. He then migrated into facilities and decided to start a company after seeing what was going on in the industry, running a data center out of Emeryville, California, which is near Oakland. And some great stories dig into not just the start of Colovore and how that got uh, got up and running, but even pre that, the time that he spent working in the data center industry during the Silicon Valley boom and bust and his experience watching that play out. Uh, the last thing that we end up talking about is just the story of him as an entrepreneur starting Call of War and getting that company up off the ground, which, you know, as a fellow entrepreneur, I could I could totally relate to the ups and downs and trials and tribulations that he was going through. But it was a fascinating conversation and will likely actually at some point be bringing his partner, Peter, into the podcast. So, Peter, if you're listening, you're coming up next, bud. Uh, so here you go. Without further ado, conversation with Sean from Colivore. Sean, how are you today? Doing good, thanks. Welcome to the uh, to the I Love Data Centers podcast, man. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, happy to do it. So there's a lot of questions that I have for you uh, teed up as to your role at Colivore, how you got started at Colivore. Uh, the process of that that company's evolution over the last six years, five, six years. And uh, before I get into any of that, though, what I'd love to do is just explore your background, you know, how you got started into tech and technology and the industry in general. And, um, you know, what, what got you into the space? I mean, that, what I'm finding is not many people even know about what the heck it is that we do for a living. And there's always some some fun and interesting stories about how people even learned about the industry itself. So 
Um, sure. with that, with that in mind, I guess the first question I have for you is where, where are you right now? Where are you physically located right now? I am sitting in uh, one of the back offices at Colavore in Santa Clara, California. And I guess real quick, so that the listeners know, what, what is Colavore? Colavore is a high-density co-location data center, um, kind of right up, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. And you guys are technically it's in Santa Clara, correct? Yes. Awesome. So talk to me, Sean. Where, where did you grow up? Where are you originally from? You know, I grew up in the suburbs of Seattle, Tacoma. And as a teenager, my sophomore year in high school, my family moved to Alaska. So I ended up finishing high school in a small town called Wasilla, Alaska. It was actually, it was disruptive in the sense that I had, you know, grown up in the same house my whole childhood. But on the other other hand, it was extremely exciting. So my dad's career took us up there and he'd been traveling up there on business for you know, a very long time. Um, so it actually, actually ended up being a really, really great place to spend my teenage years. What was his career? Heavy equipment, John Deere, heavy equipment. I'm very involved in the logging industry in Alaska. And then eventually, um, he spent a lot of time in the Southeast uh, when we were in Seattle. And then he moved up to open up another another branch of the company um, in Wasilla. And that's what took us there. So when you were a teenager, you moved to Alaska or was it before before that? No, I was a teenager. I was a sophomore in high school. So. Wow. My uh, my favorite story about Alaska is when I went to college. So I moved from Chicago to Santa Clara, California for college. And it was like during orientation freshman year, uh, there was a, a friend of mine who was from Alaska, was talking to a girl who was from um, Bakersfield, California. And she said, Alaska, are there penguins in Alaska? And my friend from Alaska said, well, yeah, actually, we, I used to live on the top of this hill and we used to actually grab the penguin and we'd actually like ride the penguin down the hill to our school. And he was clearly tongue in cheek, like making this up, but she bought sure. the whole story tongue in cheek. She bought the whole story and she actually went around like for the next week or so telling people there's Todd, he's from Alaska. He used to ride penguins until someone <laughs> yeah. was like, there aren't penguins in Alaska. And she was, she just felt like, you know, a complete idiot. <laughs> well, certainly, certainly not in the populated areas. I mean, you know, uh, Alaska is a gigantic place, right? It's two and a half times bigger than the state of Texas. And you've got about as many people in that area as the city limits of San Francisco. So yeah, if you get up far enough, no, far enough up north, you're going to find some penguins, but they certainly aren't around the, uh, the places where any of us grew up. So do you have, did you have any experiences with some of the big massive game that roamed roamed around? Oh yeah. I mean it was there were times when you know we we lived about 10 miles out of town and you know our driveway most of the, you know, I mean all of the winter, you know, a large portion of the year had 6 to 8 foot tall, you know, walls of snow on either side of the driveway. My I mean my dad was meticulous about plowing and snow blowing and he, 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 he I mean, even even took that seriously. You know, he's really into, you know, his heavy equipment. And uh and there were times pulling out of the garage just you know, we had a fairly long driveway and the moose would stand in the driveway and eat from you know, eat the trees on the sides of the driveway so they didn't have to trudge through six or eight feet of snow. So there were times where just Getting them to move out of the way so I could actually just get out of the driveway was a challenge. Um, they're like these gigantic beasts that have the brain power. You know, I, I, I would guess that our typical squirrels are probably smarter than the moose. And so it's, it's, it's a bad combination. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, you don't want to piss them off, right? Because they could probably do some damage to whatever you're driving or riding. Yeah. They're real docile, though. They're kind of, I think they're hard to piss off. But it's more the issue is, so I had a 10-mile drive into town to go to, to go to school in high school. And you'd be driving along, you know, it's, you know, and it's, the roads are iced over and, you know, snowpacked for, for months and months and months. And so you'd see a, a group of moose standing on the side of the road. It's a little two-lane road, you know. And so you slow down, just like, just imagine with a squirrel on the side of the road, right? You slow down, you slow down. You're like, okay, we've made eye contact. You know, they see the glowing, you know, headlights of the, those beast things that drive down these hard packed trails. You'd think they'd figure it out like at some point, but they're literally the point that you start to accelerate (laughs) the drive again, (laughs) they walk right in front of you. It's just, you know, so yeah, they were, you know, driving moose in Alaska is like literally you know, the most treacherous aspect of the landscape. So what, what got you into technology? Was it high school? Were you playing around with computers there or how, how did you get started with that? You know, I I came to this whole thing through, through telecom and um, I grew up with, with uh, a mom who worked her whole career in telecom. Um, So I watched her career evolve from working as a com tech when I was a young kid uh, to eventually uh, getting involved in, you know, design and engineering and, you know, those aspects, but she, that's what my mom did her whole career. So fast forward to my mid twenties and, uh, you know, I'd studied, you know, electronics and, and whatnot. And, uh, the first entry level job, uh, that I got was working as a com tech in San Francisco in, you know, one of the two major downtown central offices. Um, so that's, you know, that's how, you know, I got into all of this. And it was very familiar to me because I had, you know, I had spent a lot of time over, over my childhood visiting visiting my mom at the central office and, and later on her engineering offices. So, you know, I had a feel for what she did and it was it was interesting and, and, and very familiar. Were you able to check out one of the data centers or, or switching stations or whatnot that she may have been working out of or, or, um, Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember that vividly and yeah, you know, there were, there were times when my mom would be, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't just like, you know, take your kid to, to, to work day. It was, there could be a situation where mom got called out for a service call at, you know, 10 o'clock on a Friday night and dad said, all right, I'll, I'll stay home with, with, you know, my two younger sisters and mom would take me with her on the call out. So I'd get to go with her and just tag along and, and watch her troubleshoot and working with outside plant guys and figuring out what, you know, what the issue was and, and doing what she needed to do inside the central office. So she, she worked inside the central office and that, you know, that's the first data center I ever set foot in. And, you know, you had, you had all in, and back then, I mean, the, the equipment was massive, um, but, you know, you had huge rooms full of batteries, you had the diesel generators, you know, all all of those, all those things that are still, you know, very much a part of um, what we consider a data center today. Yeah, that's awesome. So, what what's the time frame here? Like, are we talking early '90s? When I started working for Pacific Bell, it was mid '90s, and of course, of course, the you know the experiences. Uh, you know, the first time I set foot in a central office with my mom must have been late '70s, early '80s. Holy smokes, it's yeah. crazy. So you've quite literally seen seen everything from early, early days. Yeah. Yeah. It was. So when I, when I, when I did show up, you know, on the first, first day of work at Pacific Bell, um, of course, you know, the the jitters that any 20 something would have, um, just imagining going to work now with all these, you know, 
professional people and having an idea of what the environment was like because I'd been exposed to it. And I, and I just walked in, and it's funny because it was still very familiar. You know, so much of uh, obviously the equipment had modernized quite a bit, but but the basic management of the local loop and how how we connect to businesses and res- residences, you know, through the the cable infrastructure in the street, it, that you know, that's just that hasn't changed. And so that that was all that was all very very familiar to me. And what was also interesting was that you know, I was in my mid twenties, but everybody in the work group that I was assigned to had all worked together in that same central office for twenty five close to thirty years, and they were my they were my mom's age. <laughs> Wow. So it was really it was, it was I was the first you know I was a, I think they told me I was the first at the time first new hire off the street that they'd seen uh, in over ten years. And what what was your role at that time? Comtech. It was literally um, working within the central office, running in new circuits, disconnecting old circuits. Um, you know, we kind of had four stations that we rotated through. So. You know, one would be literally just running circuits. So that was for that week, we rotated, you know, a week at a time. So all you did is you just, you got out there and, you know, ran circuits out on the main distribution frame with a wire wrap gun, usually just doing uh, copper connections and then disconnecting old stuff. And then there would be another week where you were the, the trouble ticket guy. So, and they, you know, in a downtown, you know, we were in the financial district of San Francisco. So, um, you know issues going on constantly. And so you typically would, you know, you'd quickly evaluate what was going on within, within the central office and then get on the phone with an outside plant guy and then start, you know, testing any which, any which way we could to figure out, you know, what the issue was. Um, there was another, another week you would be in the office and pulling the orders and, and, uh, taking the initial, initial calls to open trouble tickets. So, and then there was one one last uh, position where you're literally in the in the bowels of the central office, what they call the the protector frame, where all where all these cables come enter the building from from the street, and that's that's a kind of the, a common place to test with outside plant folks, just to make sure you have continuity from wherever they're at out in the city back to that central office. Um, so it was fun. It, it you know you. You got a variety, and uh, there were there were weeks where you had solitude, and you could just kind of lose yourself in your work. And there are other times when you, you were you know collaborating and working um, with folks on your team, and and of course folks out in the field. So, how did you evolve from Comtech to the next the next level in the in the food chain? I was a Comtech for about a year and a half, and uh, I had a manager, of course, that managed our, our group in the CO, and and he had. Um, a manager that managed, you know, basically all of San Francisco for for the operations, you know, central office operations, and so and so I was exposed to to her, you know, who was the city manager, and at some point they came to me and said, hey, we have a we have a management position for the outlying offices in San Francisco, and we think you'd be a good fit, and so at that time I was thrilled. For it was flattering. But on the other hand, the other issue I was dealing with was that, you know, the job I was in was not going to pay very well till I was there for about five years and got to the top of the scale. You know, it was a union job. And uh, and once you got to the top of that scale, you know, things were pretty good. But 
my first year, I mean, I was working as much overtime as I possibly could just to, just to make ends meet. It was, uh, you know, it was tough. So when they explained it to me, it sounded like a fantastic opportunity. So I, so I went around. I went, they, they took me around and toured me around. Well, it turned out, it said outline offices. Well, it turned out it, there were six of them. And that, but they were obviously much smaller than the downtown. So you're talking about the neighborhood central offices, you know, one in the Mission District, one in the Richmond District, one in the Sunset, you know, and just across the city. So it was six locations with about 50 people doing what I had been doing, you know, as a comp tech. And uh, so there's no way I could pass it up. It seemed seemed like an absolutely crazy job. And as it turned out, once I, so I was, I became one of 12 managers within within that that group in San Francisco and I, I quickly quickly found out that the reality was is that no one, no one who was an existing manager in their right mind would take that job so <laughs> they had to find they had to find a victim and and I guess I was uh I was it but uh, it, it it ended up being again it ended up being a really really phenomenal experience I learned a ton and why, uh and, why were and people really, so reticent really had to take that job because it's a lot it's a lot more attractive to be in one location and manage a large group in one of the one of the the big bustling downtown central offices rather than having six locations where you've just got a handful of people in each location so you, so you're so you're you're you know you're in your company company crappy you know white k car <laughs> driving driving back and forth and what would inevitably happen is that you would have you'd have a lull in four of those facilities, but two of them would just be slammed. And so then you're trying to get folks to be rovers and, and, and come, you know, come, come over to another location to help. And, um, and it was a challenge. Um, but I hadn't had the experience of being a manager in a cushy job. So to me, it really didn't, it, it just didn't even matter, you know? Gotcha. So then from there, you, you evolved into the data center, like the actual retail co-location data center industry. And from if memory serves me correctly, that was like right during the dot, dot com boom in San Francisco, right? Yeah. So what, what had happened was while I was at Pacific Bell and, and, and moving into this management position, the, the entire industry was dealing with the Telecom Act that had passed, which required every incumbent you know, phone company in America to open up their local loop to competitors. And logistically, within those those central offices, it was extremely challenging. And every, I mean, every central office in San Francisco is a completely different piece of architecture. It's a different age. It's, I mean, th- no two are alike. And so we had to figure out a way. So that was the first time I ever, I heard the term co-location. And we had to find space in these central offices where we could then create individual segregated spaces for these individual, you know, competitive local exchange carriers. And then we had to cable from their their space down into the main distribution frame so that we could wire their circuits. So let's say, you know, COVAD got a signed a contract for DSL for a giving business. It was still the Pacific Bell Comtex that were wiring up all those circuits. Obviously, you know, someone from Covad was doing work in their own in their own cage space on a different floor and configuring the switching. It was the Pacific Bell technicians that were actually running those orders on the on the main distribution frame. So you know, you've got these old central offices that 
the good thing was is that most of them had space available because the the switching equipment had miniaturized so much that you had open floors in some of these central offices. You also used to have four or 500 people that were working in customer service and billing and, and whatnot that used to work right in the neighborhood central offices. And now instead of hundreds of people, you might have a dozen people, you know, ComTech and switching people working in that entire giant building. So space wasn't the challenge, but it was logistics and, and getting getting everything wired up. It was really a challenge and, and it was a it was a custom sort of job in every single CO. So that that was my experience. And so I so I was very involved in that. In in six six central offices in the city, um, I was very involved in, in those projects and it was it was an amazing learning experience and it really opened my eyes to you know and, and at the same time the dot com thing was really coming on. And so a lot of what was going on, a lot of the folks that were co-locating in the central office were there to meet what they, you know, what they believe was going to be the demand of the dot-com boom. So you even saw co-location going on inside the Pac Bell central offices? Oh, yeah. Every, yeah. Every single one of them. We literally, every single CO we had to open up to the co-location. Wow. So, was, so, so what then, did that, what, that must have been somewhat of a... F- a relatively foreign type of product or service for PacBell to be to be selling. Did they really understand what they were doing at that point, or was it just kind of like, yeah, I guess I guess we can do that? Well, they had no choice but to comply. It was you know it was a federal mandate that they do this, and I mean, so imagine imagine just trying to create an order system. Like you know, the phone company was really good at doing all this internally for themselves. But when all of a sudden now you have to interface with, you know, in some cases in the, you know, in the, in the main hubs downtown, I mean, it it was uh, unbelievable how many companies moved into those CEOs. It was all speculative, you know, based on the dot-com boom. And, you know, so we had a telecom boom that was coinciding with the dot-com boom. And uh, so you had all these, all these new companies that had been founded and funded to go out and win that telecom business. So they all had so, to install their network infrastructure inside the major hub. Yeah, inside the central office. So yeah, so then and again, you know, the cabling, the, the the physical cabling to get them connected to the local loop so that they could get out to those clients uh around the city was one thing, but you know, but then we had to we had to start running power to to rooms and locations that were never meant to necessarily be hosting telecom equipment. In some cases, it was a room that had until the day before carpet <laughs> glued down to the concrete slab and now they're ripping it out and preparing it to, and, and building out cage space and rack space for these uh competitive local exchange carriers or CLEX as, as they refer to. So so that was so that was quite an eye opener. It was extremely disruptive to the just the the whole culture in the central office. Before that they were, you know, the, the the CO was a fortress, and no one set foot in those buildings except employees. And now you've got situations in some cases where even silly logistics, like just where the bathrooms were located, we had some COs where when <laughs> when someone from the the colo floor had to use the restroom, one of the comtechs had to go up and escort them to the bathroom because there wasn't one within the space they were allowed to reside in. So someone had to escort them to a restroom. It was that ridiculous. It was very difficult. So I take it all of that provided some great learning, <laughs> learning and context for when you actually then migrated into a production 
retail co-location environment. Yeah, a- absolutely. So, so you know, I, I kept reading about all these startup co-location companies that were that were raising money and starting to you know build. You know, initially it was you know Equinix and Switching Data and Cola.com and when I first started reading about them, you know, Equinix had, I think, one facility in Virginia. And, you know, I think Cola.com had, like, partial builds in L.A. and in Virginia. Um, switching data, um, very similar, you know, sort of scenario. So I finally, you know, after researching these companies, you know, Cola.com was headquartered just minutes from San Francisco in Brisbane. So I just sent out a resume, 8.30 in the morning middle of the week and I got a phone call like an hour later and that same day I was in Emeryville at the time Cola.com was building a data center in Emeryville and they had plans for several more in the bay and, and across the country and even Europe but they but they actually had a facility you know just 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 across the the bridge and so that that same day that I sent in my my resume I was interviewing at you know, touring and interviewing at the Emeryville Cola.com facility. And and I walked into this, and it, and it was one of the smallest sites that Cola.com built. Um, and I walked into this facility, and here's this purpose-built, thought-out co-location facility. And com- compared to what we were doing in the central offices, it just, it made so much sense. And uh, I was, you know, I was hooked uh, immediately. So how, what what was it like back then? I mean, was it customers calling routinely all day, every day, looking for services, or did you actually have to? I mean, what I got a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, basically, was about yeah, to ask yeah. five questions at the same time. But there was competition. There was starting to be some competition in the market. Obviously, the Bay Area at that time was hot, so there was there was just a lot of activity going on. Uh, when I mm-hmm. first got started in the industry back in two thousand five, two thousand six. I just heard endless stories from sales reps talking about how they would make President's Club uh, and you know thought they were God's gift to sales when really all they were doing was just taking tickets of customers calling in. Um, you know, I'd never got to experience that for better or worse. <laughs> but yeah, uh, w- yeah, you know, you were there. What was it like? It was like the gold rush. You know, it was, and you know, all of the companies were were building on massive speculation. So when I came in, you know, so I, so I'm an operations guy. I was hired as a like, you know, the area. I, I can remember what the title was, um, but basically they hired me to manage what would be the four Bay Area Cola.com facilities. So Emeryville site was just coming online, but they already had uh, the shell space in San Francisco, which I then also went and looked at um, as I was, you know, making my decision. They had also already had a lease right here at 3080 Raymond around the corner from from where I'm sitting, Santa Clara. They had one out in San Ramon. And so what I was asked to do was see the the facility through the construction process, um, meaning not managing the process, but getting a, a front row seat so I so I could learn and, and see how these facilities all go to, all hang together and how they work. And having come from telecom you know, at that point, I had a great feel for the connectivity side, but man, I mean, seeing how an electrical room is built and how, um, you know, the HVAC systems are built and just how all this stuff comes together, it was it was an amazing experience. And I got to do that 
um, kind of right in a row. So San, they, so San Francisco was next, and so 650 Townsend, um, you know, I was there every day. I started hiring the staff, the operations staff for that facility and kind of timing it so they're coming on um, so that they can also see their, see their data center being built. And uh, we did a lot, of, a lot of hard hat sales tours. Um, and so, you know, what was typical at the time is that the, the operations manager would uh, assist the, the sales team in touring potential clients through the data center. So I also, having had no sales experience um, up, up to that point, all of a sudden, you know, started doing sales tours and, and got exposed to the sales side of the business. But basically, over a matter of, you know, a, a year, you know, we built out three more data centers in the Bay, staffed them, and started filling them up. And in and, and, and a lot of these markets, you know, the, the sites were literally sold out, like the you know, the hot, the hot kind of you know, called, I think they referred to them as NFL markets uh, back in the day, but, but a lot of them were sold out before the doors were even open. So it was, it was something to behold for sure. And was, was there much of a process in terms of like, were people looking at density? Were people looking at like how they were going to configure and where people were going to go inside the facility? Or was it just kind of take the order and install and move on to the next. Yeah, the model the model for us, um, each site had a given ratio. Of, you know, t- based on the the total amount of space, there was a given ratio of um, locking cabinets that were built out, and then um, and then some you know very standard size cage space, and then there was some some percentage that was left for you know custom type deployments. Um, so so obviously in the in the cabinet aisles, you know, as long as, <laughs> as long as, you know, you made sure your clients installed in a front to front, back to back way, we didn't have, we didn't have a lot of issues, but in the cage space, there were times when, when even just the simple, you know, concept of orienting the racks in a front to front, back to back scenario, um, became problematic just because of, uh, the way that the client wanted to you know, wanted to build out their space. And so, yeah, there were, there were some lessons learned I, I think anybody who was around during that time will tell you that it was at the cage space uh, deployments were very, very willy nilly all over the place. And there were a lot of issues of one client's equipment exhausting into the intake of another and just silly stuff like that. I, uh, I learned that lesson firsthand, just seeing the aftermath up in 200 Paul <laughs> and on the, on the oh, yeah. 200 Paul, it was almost like they were just playing Tetris. There was just, there were certain racks or certain cages where you couldn't even get to the cage unless you went through another client's cage. Um, I know, I know of the space that you speak of and that, so that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. There was a lot of that. Yeah. It was, it was pretty interesting. One of the, the, eventually the company I was working with United layer took over the contract for, the the fifth floor and the first thing that we went about doing was just re-architecting and reorganizing how that floor was laid out because there were so many inefficiencies uh, and just by simply working with clients to re-architect what was where we were able to uh, bring in a lot more new capacity and a lot more space in in that on that floor but it was uh, not easy to tell a customer who had been there for many many years doing business without 
any issues or problems uh, that they had to basically re-architect everything that they that they had in the environment. Yeah, that's always a really tough conversation to have. And I remember uh, it was probably just before you joined United Layer, but I remember meeting Richard and you know him coming over to visit us in Emeryville and um, and me visiting you know him at Two Hundred Pole. And I remember walking through that room with him, and he was he was you know, lamenting about the, uh, he was excited to have, you know, have the, the space, but, uh, but yeah, how much work it was going to be. So at what point did you migrate then over into Emeryville or were you, were you always working out of that, that space and in that office? I was always involved. That was always one of the facilities that was, you know, part of my responsibility, but so, you know, so much happened from, so, you know, we're talking about the, you know the high flying days in 2000, where these these facilities are opening and filling up, and just crazy activity, and 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 just incredibly fun. I mean, all of the you know all of the the companies that we interacted with that were they were clients in in the facilities. I mean, they're all they're all startups. Everyone's everyone's you know speculating that you know this this dot com boom is 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 just going to be uh, just a really fun ride. And and it was, but at some point, uh, you know, what in two thousand two thousand one, in a very short period of time, you know, this all this all came undone. And what we what we realized very quickly, you know, the you know the the stock market just just tanked. And what we realized very quickly was that all of the all of the colo providers were, you know, venture and private equity backed and. All of our customers <laughs> were venture and private equity backed, and even you know some of the service providers who had come to market to because at the time you know Ethernet was almost like this magic new thing. So you had all the telecom carriers pulled into the pop rooms of these cola facilities because they were so happy to get this stuff out of their central office. But then you had companies that were that were the Ethernet companies, right? That you know you had Internap. Internap was in nearly every you know facility that that I interacted with at Cola.com, and you had Yipes, and you had you had several of these you know startup you know bandwidth providers who you know because doing doing BGP you know blended bandwidth you know in 2000 was you know it was like you know this you know, black art, like some sort of magic. And now it's just something we all do for ourselves. Um, but anyways, when, so when, 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 when the market tanked and there was no more money, new money flowing to these companies, we realized that, you know, we were all backed by a very small group of investors, you know, relatively. And it just, it was like a house of cards. There was, there was no one, no, no providers, no customers, no one in that whole ecosystem was profitable as a, as a business. So we lived through, you know, chapter 11 bankruptcy at cola.com, um, which in it, in it of itself was an amazing education because we were headquartered in Brisbane, the bankruptcy court, uh, that, that, you know, the cola.com bankruptcy was tried in was in downtown San Francisco. And so I went to bankruptcy court every day and sat in on, you know, every day that, that that they were in court, I sat in on the proceedings and just just took it all in. Um, I went, I actually went and, and um, at, at the bankruptcy court and asked them to see the file on on the on the bankruptcy and just just to pick through because it's all public information, right? At that point, 
So you were just there um, as I remember, a spectator I mean, who who had been employed or were employed, not because you actually needed to be or had to be there. No, no, I did it. No, I was still employed. Um, and I went because at that point, the folks that were that were in the Bay Area and near headquarters, everyone, you know, because we had we had we had at that point twenty six data centers across the country, and everyone was looking to the to local folks to to get some kind of read on what in the world was going on. And uh, and you know it, I would say there's probably some level of corporate spin to try to keep keep people you know calm. There were there were retention bonuses, so I mean a lot of people did get laid off, of course. But for the folks that they wanted to stick around and they needed they needed to be there to successfully make it through the the bankruptcy, um, you know there were retention bonuses and whatnot. But you know people didn't feel like they were really getting the the straight scoop on what was going on, and so I just. I had nothing else to do. <laughs> we weren't, it's not like we were building out data center space or moving people in. So I just started, you know, I mean, I lived, I, I lived, you know, in the mission district, it was a few minutes for me to get to the courthouse. Um, and so I, I sat through that and then I would, we'd get on conference calls with the operations team and just share with them what happened in court. And I think of nothing else, not that there was anything groundbreaking or anything else, but I think at least gave people some comfort that, um, at least they had an idea what in the heck was going on. And so over time, the, there was a successful sale through Chapter 11, and a group of investors bought 22 of those 26 data centers. By and large, every, everyone operationally stayed on with the new company, and you know we you know lived to fight another day, basically. So what were some of those lessons learned in that process? Like, Can you think of one or two things that stuck out from, from going through it all? Yeah, the more than anything, it was taking it was it, it was it was really like theater. At that point, I just felt such a detachment from you know the excitement of you know going to work for this this company during this really really exciting time, and now we're in a in an environment where literally all of the clients have moved out of the data centers. Um, the data centers are empty. The only thing left in the racks are servers that are, were just literally just left and that the collections folks haven't caught up with yet. And so it was just more, it was more surreal. And, but just watching the theater of how this bankruptcy was being handled in court, because you got to imagine there must've been, I, I can't even imagine how many bankruptcies were, were, were happening simultaneously in the city of San Francisco. There was a lot. And so Cola.com had some money in the bank. They, they had, they had a clear path to operate the business um, to get to a sale, and so I think it probably was was you know fairly smooth compared to what you know some of the other um, companies went through. For me, it, it wasn't. It, it was more just watching the theater of the the attorneys. Um, you know, there were obviously Cola.com had their own corporate you know uh, counsel, but yeah, you. Know, you they hired specialty folks to get them through to the other side. And so just watching the interaction with the judge and, you know, all of the vendors that Cola.com owed money to all had to come and, and testify. And so that, that, and that was really interesting, right? Because we were so busy thinking about ourselves, thinking about our clients and, and, you know, what's, what's going to happen to us in our industry. You, you know, you don't think about, the you know the general contractors you don't think about the electrical contractors i mean i mean a lot of companies 
who weren't in our industry but service our industry lost a ton of money. And it was painful. It was painful to sit through that and and for them to know that on the other side of the cell that 22 of these facilities is going to pop out on the other end and be a new company with no debt, you know, it was interesting. It sounds interesting. It's probably taken out lightly, right? How how many different people were involved on so many levels and how much money was involved on so many levels. I uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you have a company, you have a company that raised a half a billion dollars and, uh, and within, you know, a few short years. Um, you know, this is this is the way that it ended, and, and, and it, you know, and it, it wasn't specific to Cola.com. It you know, that's that's what happened to everyone. Right. Um, I mean, along that note, I mean, along that that line, you know, the only company I can think of in our industry that didn't go bankrupt was Equinix. But even even so, and I mean, it's it's a testament. But even so, they did suffer a, I believe, 2001, early 2002, somewhere in that time frame they they had a reverse you know they you know they restructured the entire company there was a re, a reverse stock split of 32 to 1 wow yeah so it was it was it was hard times so so, what, so what we were did, some of those old did, school companies there was globix there was um God, i was just thinking of the other one um well there was a combination right there was the 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 pure colo companies and you know colocation interconnect type companies so you know you had Equinix and Exodus. Exodus, um, that was, yeah. And then yeah, AboveNet, um, but AboveNet went through the bankruptcy, but they kept the name afterwards, I guess. Yeah, so there was so there was the, the the Colo Interconnect folks, but then you had also you had the companies like Global Crossing, Level Three, you know, uh, 360 Networks, those types of companies that were spanning the globe literally right. with fiber optic cable. Um, and building, yeah, and building data centers, right? And so you had, I mean, and you had, you know, some of the WorldCom was, you know, was involved in that. I mean, um, yeah, so you had you had this, you know, telecom component, and you know, boom and bust happening simultaneously, almost with the with the dot com um, boom and bust. So out of all that, the company survives, gets sold off. You're still there, and you're dealing with the aftermath, and you're in the Bay area, which is going through some really rough times. Like when do when do you start to feel like things are recovering and that things are turning back around? Cause that's, that's always been an interesting and fascinating story for me. I was part of a startup that went from 99 basically until 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. And in my world, from my perspective, cause I didn't get out of college until 2002 um, coming out in 2002, when we were part of the startup, it was you know, it was a blessing and a curse. It was a blessing because it taught me how to hustle. And, you know, there was no there was no free meal. There was no ticket taking. If you want a business, you had to go out and fight for it tooth and nail. Um, yeah. The curse was, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't have the experience of actually being in the boom time of of all these companies uh, that were just getting tickets, you know, left and right. Um, but I started seeing the economy start to take a shift in around 2004, 2005. Um, and I'm curious though, from your perspective, having, having a data center, like when did you start to see customers coming back to the table? Yeah, it's a great question. So it was, and, and, and unfortunately it was not nearly as, nearly as fast as, as we had hoped and that the investors that had bought these facilities had hoped. So 
So new company, they buy 22 of the of the facilities. They they brand the company Clear Blue Technologies. I think maybe because the investors were UK based, they may not have realized that we had a really popular pregnancy test by that name um, in the US. We had a lot of we had a lot of good laughs about about that. But nonetheless, we persevered as Clear Blue. And right after, literally right after the the sell was complete. 9/11 happened. I mean, so we're just starting. To, everyone's just hoping that the economy is going to rally, and you know, we're gonna, you know, from from all these assets that were built during, you know, the dot com boom, that somehow, you know, we can still, you know, make use of them and, you know, build a company, build an industry, and just it, it just it just wasn't happening. You know, 9/11 was was obviously horrendous, and it had it had a huge impact on the economy. And so these investors, though, they they plowed forward and they. Uh, they started buying up managed hosting companies. So their thought was, you know, we're going to consolidate the market here for pennies on the dollar. We've got brand new data centers that were just built. We've got, you know, companies with smart people um, that are offering managed IT services. And so that that was their that was their game plan. And they, you know, they forged on. But during that time, the uptake in the on the data center side just wasn't happening. So w- when they took over, so they actually hired back. The gentleman who was our VP of operations who hired me, the the man who hired me, you know, interviewed me in Emeryville in 2000 and and put me in that role. He had been laid off. And then then the new investors brought him back, which was a really, really smart move because, you know, everyone everyone loved him and it really kind of helped galvanize things operationally. And so he asked me to manage the the West region. So there was was 12 data centers from Texas West. So I, I had... Those 12 and another guy sitting in Vienna was managing the other 10. You know, we set up a knock on both coasts and we, you know, we really, we, you know, operationally, we really, you know, just, we got after it. And we basically had the same team, um, you know, that we had at Colo.com. Everyone operationally, man, the managers of each data center, you know, by and large stayed on. But over time, these facilities, we, we just were not getting traction in a lot of the markets. And so those 12 data centers started dwindling and started, you know, dwind, you know, all of a sudden Seattle gone they had you know so they were they were either selling the data centers or they were negotiating with because these are all leases right they're all long-term leases so they were negotiated where they could they would negotiate with the property owner to just give them give them the data center in exchange for getting out of the lease right in some cases there are also some really large deposits uh, on some of these properties and so they say hey keep the deposit take the data center just please let us out of the lease and so this started happening uh and it was I mean, all of a sudden, Seattle, Portland, Houston, Phoenix. I mean, it just, it, it just, uh, San so Diego. So, pretty, so, so this region was, was <laughs> for me, was dwindling pretty quickly. That's um, an interesting point, though, because um, how, I guess how many of those properties were owned and operated, like the land owned and operated by Cola.com and or the new entity? None of them. None of them. None they of were them. all leases. No, they were from... all, yeah, all long-term leases, which... You know, I mean, is uh, I mean, to this day, that's that's the most common scenario for for a, a cola facility is that it's in most cases. Again, I'm talking retail cola. You know, they're the, the buildings lease, and for for a very long, you know, with 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 terms that will take you out thirty some years, but but they're leases nonetheless. Right. So that's so during that time, the investors bought a company called Navisite. You know, here in San Jose, and you know, yet another um, managed service acquisition. But also, they happen to be public. 
and they'd happened to survive. I mean, at one point they were, you know, they were on the list of top 100 IPOs or whatever. Um, yes, they were a high flyer at one point. So the investors bought Navisite, and now they rolled the entire clear blue portfolio up under Navisite. And so essentially, what they did was like a, a reverse merger, and it was a really, it was a really slick, inexpensive way to go public. So now here we are. We're we're now Navisite, and we're you know a publicly traded company. But for me, operationally, the the trend was pretty disconcerting, and I kind of got it in my head that. If they ever if if they ever did this with one of the Bay Area sites, I would attempt to, you know, negotiate with the property owner and just and, and see if there's a way to start a standalone business, a standalone you know co-location business. And so that that ended up coming to fruition in Emeryville. And you know, I was notified that they were working with the property owner to do the same thing they had done in so many other uh, locations. And I happened to know I had happened to you know. Get to know the property owners pretty well in Emeryville. I spent a lot of time there, and so my and I also reached out to you know someone I knew in the industry that also knew the property owners and someone who understood real estate and 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 co-location, and asked him if he would help me and explained to him that you know, I wanted to partner with the property owner and, and create a standalone cola facility. And so it actually worked out to be really great for both sides because at that time. In some markets, you couldn't give a data center away, which seems so crazy because we're just, you know, a couple years removed from the boom, and now in some locations they were they were tough to move. So, the, so the property owners didn't know what the heck to do with the cola facility, and so we approached them and said, hey, you know, let's let's put together some, you know, an operational budget. Let's put some money. We'll start an LLC. Let's put some money into it and and uh, see if we can get this thing profitable. And and really, I mean, day one, the business plan was we're, we know we're creating an orphan. That will eventually need a parent, but what other options do you have? <laughs> and and at that time, I just was really up for a challenge. I I just felt like I was just kind of you know sitting and twiddling my thumbs, and I didn't always agree with the direction that the company was going in. And I was you know I was younger and and a bit more cocky, and I thought that there were more efficient, more interesting ways to run a cola facility. And so, what better way to test my thesis than to bite off more than I can chew and then try to chew it. And, but that's essentially what happened. So in early, well, I'd say, you know, early to mid July was when that deal got done and we started, we just named it Emory Tech Data Center. The name of the building was the Emory Tech building. And, uh, that, that's what we branded the company and we that's got out there. And, of, and, of what? 2000? Oh, oh, three. Oh, three. Oh, three. So you're absolutely right. When you say you, you felt the, the uh, the market coming back in maybe oh four oh five because that you know oh five was really when things changed for us so we struggled mightily through for a year and a half and you know we we negotiated we negotiated I believe a year or more of rent abatement in you know in our agreement and then it would the the, the lease would start ramping in after that so we'd gotten to our you know we'd won enough business you know fighting and scratching to cover our operating expenses. <laughs> and, and right when right when we got to that point, then the lease kicked in. And it was painful. And just it, it was so tough to win deals. And you know, the companies that were were profitable businesses that had data center requirements, they'd all retreated back to their own in-house server rooms. And all of the colo companies uh they were out there at the time were all going through horrible restructuring bankruptcies and so i mean people 
it isn't that they that they thought that cola was a bad idea. It's just that they didn't know who they could trust at that point. It was it was a very challenging time. And so during that time, you know, knowing that we we had we obviously would have loved to have gotten further, but we were watching what happened with Equinix and their reverse merger and just what's going on in the market. And so we had an opportunity to merge with a small managed service company. And again, having spent the time uh, at Navisite and interacting with the product offerings, you know, ha- having having more to offer a client, especially back then, it was such an immature um, industry. So what I learned trying to, for a year and a half running it with as strictly Colo with Ethernet is that everybody needed help with something. And we kept having to say no. And and by merging when we did with this with a small company called Evocative, who had been around for like seventeen years. I actually at the time maybe it was maybe it was more like twelve or thirteen, but but had been around and had really during the during the, the boom, they were uh you know, one of the top e commerce companies out there, but they just if for whatever reason they didn't they didn't get the big investment money and didn't have a chance to really blow it out and so other companies who maybe maybe didn't have you know near a slick of a product um ended up taking up the market share so, so I we joined to, we, can I make a guess here that the owners of evocative were probably engineers themselves oh absolutely hundred one hundred percent and they they yes. weren't the finance I mean, finance sales marketing folks that uh went a different path, right? Which probably was to their well, benefit because they maintained a profitable business while everyone else. Yeah. Although I got to tell you, I got to tell you, and I, you know, again, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't there. So I only heard the, you know, the stories, but you know, the two partners at the time that, that founded Evocative were, you know, very savvy people. And I, you know, to this day, you know, I'm, I am surprised that they, that they didn't, um, because obviously they're very very engineer centric, but also well-rounded, you know, smart business people. Just put it that way. So, but for whatever reason, that didn't happen. But they had they had a really loyal following and a nice revenue stream. And so, but but they knew that they're probably going to need to morph their business a little bit um, to have some long-term success. And so we we glued the, the business together, and uh, and then so that so now we're fast forwarding. So we're talking now we're at the end of '04, I guess, and, uh, and and then in 2005, what the magic thing that happened is that after that, what we turned into a, a very, you know, a five-year recession, all of a sudden people started buying servers again. People started buying routers and switches again. And guess what? They realized very quickly they couldn't house those things in their in-house data centers anymore. And it's the first time that the power density issue really, you know, reared its head and, and, and we benefited from it greatly. Yeah. Because you had everything they were, were waiting looking. for it. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And at that time we had a data center that could handle that, that density. And people were looking at these shiny Dell ads with 40, you know, one U power edge servers in the rack. And they tried, they tried to deploy that in their office and breakers tripped and air conditioners overheated. And they just realized, you know, this isn't going to work. And so that's when we really, things really took off for us. And we felt like, okay, we, you know, we, we should, we should be able to put together a nice run here. Yeah. I'll always remember walking into a friend's office around 2005, 2006 
and he had two servers just sitting in a closet. And I was like, what, you know, are you telling me that these two servers are running your entire business? And he had a a successful e-commerce company that became very large. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, dude, this is your, your entire revenue stream is contingent on the power staying on inside this closet, inside this building. You you need to rethink this strategy as soon as possible. And spend, yeah. you know, at that time it was what, like 150, 200 bucks for, for you inside of a cert, in, inside of a, a cabinet inside of a data center. I mean, it's like chump change just to have a safe place to put your servers. But yeah, especially in a, in a, in a business where your, your clientele will quickly tell you how many millions of dollars they lose per minute that they're down. So, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, you want a little redundancy there. So, so let's fast forward, Sean, you're, you're out evocative for looks like six, seven years. And then there's a couple lessons that you learned while you were there. And I think the, the evolution of what happened there, but, and the impetus of how Colivore got started is a pretty interesting story that I'd love, I'd love for you to tell the listeners. Yeah. So, so, you know, this, this theme of, of, uh, Power density and, and Moore's law, we benefited from it greatly in 05 because all of a sudden folks couldn't house things in-house any longer uh, or, or very well. And so we started winning business. And so it was, you know, it was like manna from heaven. And then, <laughs> and then the, next, the, next, the next refresh cycle hit. And, uh, and now we've got clients that are starting to install blade chassis. and. I just remember the day that a client fully populated a four rack unit blade chassis and he literally pulled all the power in his rack in 4U. He had two 20 amp, 120 volt circuits in that rack and he pulled 80% off of both of those. He was at 4KW in, in four rack units. And I tell you what, I, you know, it, it made me a little nauseous. And so, Obviously, you know, they weren't coming in by the pallet full, but immediately we looked at that and thought, okay, this is, you know, we have a single data center. This is our entire business. And if this trend continues, we're going to have to either find something else to do for a living or we're going to have to address it. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about how we might build denser. We might do this differently. And we learned very quickly that uplifting the existing facility um, is just an extremely difficult, impossible thing to do for the most part. We were able to build out a section where we could double the density. We were able to, you know, we had some capacity on the cooling loop. We, we, we installed a couple more, more, you know, 30 ton crack units and created an area for our anchor tenants where we could, where we could double their density because that's what they were asking for. So, so we had, we had, you know, a good number of racks that were pulling 8kW but then when you do that now you're just now you're just pulling power capacity from the already low density space around the rest of the data center but that was really that that was that moment really affected me and so as a company you know the decision was to grow let's raise some more money let's build out some high density space and then eventually migrate folks out of the existing facility and then uplift that and you know that's it's a it's a for us, it would you know for a for a profitable company that had no debt, that's a that's a really big undertaking to decide that we're gonna take debt and um, 
and really sign up for another God knows how many years, right? To to make that company profitable and and make that investment worthwhile. And the decision at the end of the day um, was to sell the company. You you hit on a very interesting topic that I I've talked to a lot of people about, but I don't think many people truly understand. Uh, and it's around what it takes to do that kind of upgrade within an existing facility. So there there are thousands of data centers that were built right in the 90s and the 2000s, and even even unfortunately in 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 that are not designed for high density and or that have extremely high uh, PUEs or to say they're just not efficient, right? It takes a lot of power yeah, to deliver yeah. power. And what yeah. what all, you know, with your operational background and I think with your business and sales experience, how, how would you explain to someone the difficulty it is to actually do that type of upgrade, to take a a building that was built in maybe 2000 or 1998 mm-hmm. uh, that has a PUE of two or even 1.8 or 1.7 and convert that into something that can compete with some of the new facilities coming online today that are, you know, 1.15 or 1.2 or, uh, you know, like your new building, right? Your, your facility that can do 20, 30, 40 KW a rack. Like how is it, is it even feasible? Is it even possible? And what, what does it take to do that? You know, every data center is different, but the but the recurring theme um, each time I've looked at this is that when the data center was built, it wasn't built with the idea that in 10 years, we're going to want to bring in a bigger service from the utility. We want to build a new electrical room. You know, you, you have to have adjacent space to build out the new infrastructure while you're still operating your business on, on the existing. Um, because what no one, because no, what no one's, you know, wants to sign up to do is, is say, you know what, we got a nice business here. We're, you know, we've got a wonderful revenue stream, but we want to, we really want to, we want to triple the density here. So let's just on, on contract renewals, we're moving everybody out. We're going to take on a ton of debt and our revenue is going to be zero for 12 months. And then we're going to hope to win business back <laughs> once we open the new data center. That you know that that obviously is not an attractive option. Um, and we we did look, and I think everybody everybody who's in the situation, you take a look and you see what space do we have where we can we can do this. And and and, and actually at Evocative we did we you know, we we inherited a, a a power plant in Emeryville. And like many of the the cola facilities that were built in that dot com era, you know, like we were talking about, there was also a telecom boom happening at the same time. And so what cola dot com did, and a lot of uh, the cola facilities at the time, whatever their whatever their capacity, their power capacity to the floor was, they built it out half or more in DC power, and whatever was left as UPS protected power, and in Emeryville, as Cola.com, I mean, we had half the floor, if not more, was DC-powered telecom companies. At one point, WorldCom had several hundred square feet of the equipment that you're used to seeing in the central office in that Cola facility, just because they didn't have, they had no space of their own available at the time. So when that when that facility emptied out and we took it over and started Emory Tech Data Center, we had a tiny little UPS plant 
and a really beefy DC plant. And I was really hoping at the time that the the whole, you know, DC powered server, you know, thing would take off. There was a company called Rackable Systems that was really pushing DC powered servers. And it makes all the sense in the world. But there's a real issue when you have IT folks that are used to just plugging things into power strips and now all of a sudden they're they're dealing with fuse panels and <laughs> 48 volt power. It just it just is not is not a good fit. And it never and it never took off. So eventually what we had to do at Evocative was we had to sacrifice floor space on the data center floor and build out a larger UPS plant out on the floor. And it, it's the reason it worked was because we're, we're we're selling at higher densities and so we're we're lo- we got floor space we couldn't use anyway. But that's the real challenge is if you want to uplift the whole the whole power plant, cooling plant, everything, you've got to have adjacent space to build everything out so that you can run them the, the old and new simultaneously. And that's that's assuming that you can get a bigger feed from the utility and, and, and all of those other things. So in Emeryville we were in, you know, a fairly confined space in a multi tenant building and uh there was only so much we could do there. It's just it was a real challenge. Related to that question, and one that I, I would love to get your opinion on, is I see still in the market, I see still in the market today, so many facilities that are just old legacy facilities. And they are low density. They have a handful of carriers that, that are on net, but they're expensive to run. And they keep changing hands in the market. I mean, you can see over the last, you know, even six, seven, eight years, there may be two, three different owners of those properties and people who come in and they try to make that property work and they can't. And then a new private equity firm picks it up. I hate to say it, but, you know, today there was an announcement of a private equity firm acquiring a business that I think is is sitting in similar shoes to that right now, uh, where they have a lot of facilities that are just old legacy properties. Um, yeah. What's what's going to happen to those buildings? What's going to happen to those facilities? Are they eventually going to convert into office space um, and decommission and just sell off all the infrastructure? Or what do you see happening to them? I don't know, and and I'm really puzzled. Um, I mean, I mean the exact type of transactions you're talking about. I mean. Man, I mean, in the past four weeks, there's been several, and and you are you're seeing the same legacy facilities just you know being recycled, and uh, part of it, part of it I think is you know the view of the world having faced a client face to face on on the data center floor and supported them and and really gotten to know them, got to know what their challenges are, what you know how they would actually like to see things. Um, it gives you a different perspective than just looking at a spreadsheet. You can't just look at a spreadsheet and look at historic revenues based on capacity and think that that's going to win the day. That's worth that's worth you know pulling your money with a couple other firms and and going into business when you've just watched someone you know a very similar group um, with great track records do the same thing on the same facilities and lose money. <laughs> um, so I you know it's hard it's hard for me to wrap my brain around. All I know is We've got our view of the world. It's why we've spent all the time we have um, raising the money, building a business plan. You know, you know, building this business. Well, let's, um, let's but, dig into it, Sean. What what is your view of the world, and who is your team, and what what do you got cooking? I'd love I'd love to 
hear that story. And if you could, if you could squeak into that story, where the name Colovore comes from, that, that would also be sweet. <laughs> we can do that. You know, our, our initial thesis here. So when, when the decision was made that, you know, we were, we were going to sell evocative um, and that, you know, I was going to need to find something else to do. Cause I, I, and at that point I had no idea who potentially would, would buy the company, but I just knew that I really, I want to take another swing at being an entrepreneur and I didn't necessarily want to go back to working for a larger company. And so the first person I thought of um, was Peter Harrison. And so, you know, Peter, um, Peter and I met actually at Navisite when that merger happened, Peter was in charge of network for the Western region. And I had the data centers for the Western region and we uh, ended up becoming fast friends and, uh, and just spent a lot of time brainstorming and, and, uh, and, and worked on a lot of deals together too, um, a lot of deployments and whatnot. And so during the years from when I left and went to start Emory Tech Data Center, and, and, and by the way, Peter was instrumental in, in helping me get that business started, the network set up. Um, he was very involved, and I always dreamed of him at some point being able to, to join me and run the business you know, together. And uh, in that, that timing just didn't work out. Um, we just never got the business to the point where that made sense. And, and uh, selling the business and, and merging with Evocative just became the most logical decision. Um, but I've always, always had a, just a tremendous respect and fondness for Peter. So I called him up and just said, hey, um, you know, things are changing. Let's, let's get together for coffee. And we had, we had recently moved to Oakland from San Francisco after being there for almost 20 years and Peter hadn't been to the new place. So we just invited him over for coffee on Saturday morning. And, you know, Peter and I had a reoccurring conversation, you know, through, you know, through that, whatever, you know, how many years it had been, um, close to 10 years. And, and we just noticed that, you know, more and more we were, we were bemoaning this issue of, of density. And, and Peter, you know, Peter was part of the team that launched the, it was Peter's team that launched the video downloading service for Netflix. He, he spent time uh, at eBay managing, you know, really large chunks of infrastructure and then went on to Google. And we ended up nearly every time we got together, power density kept coming up as an issue and, and being a problem for us on, you know, as a colo provider and for someone who's consuming, you know, colo services. And so invited Peter over and said, Hey, you know, we, years ago, we, we talked about, you know, doing something together. And I know now you're, you know, obviously, you know, doing something, you know, much more glamorous at Google, but I just asked them straight up. I said, would you be interested in, you know, writing a business plan based on this thesis around density um, and the issues, you know, the disruption we see it causing and, and, and see if we can fund a business. And he just, I, I thought he would, you know, say, yeah, we'll think about it and get back. And he just, and he just said, he said in a heartbeat, that was his response. And, uh, and so that's, that's when we decided to start writing a business plan. And so we, what we committed to was that we would write a plan, try to write a plan through the lens of the engineer that works in the colo the system administrators, the network engineers, DevOps guys, and let's let's really try to be thoughtful of what they would want and what, you know, what what they would like to see because this industry grew out of two industries. It grew out of telecom and it grew out of commercial real estate. 
And in neither case, although very, very mature, very successful industries, they don't consider IT in, in the way they deploy their services. And so that was really that was really the genesis of it. So how about the name though, Sean? Why Colovore? <laughs> we had the we had the toughest time coming up with the name. We probably glued you know, it was very you know, it's 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 very common in the industry. You just you know, you take two cool words and you glue them together and that's your name, right? I mean we had a list going. So kind of at the end of each session working on the on the plan, we would uh you know, we'd probably pour an adult beverage and, and, you know, relax and bounce around some ideas. And I mean, we were, we were coming up with nothing. And I mean, I mean, this went on for months. And so my, my son, who's now seven, who, you know, was right, right around two, I think he was a little younger than two, but he was really into this like hard plastic molded T-Rex at the time. That was just like his favorite toy. And, uh, and so my wife, Vanessa could hear that we were, you know, we, we were, we had moved on to like happy hour. So she let Luke, you know, come in and, and, and say hi. And so he, he's, he, he's, and he, you know, ran up to Peter and he's holding this T-Rex and he's just going, rawr, rawr, I'll eat you up. And it was, he was, you know, he was actually being fairly threatening for, for a two-year-old. And so Peter, you know, in his casual manner, he just said, oh, so I take it your friend is a carnivore. And we chuckled, but then Peter just looked back at the list and looked at me and he said, colovore. And that was literally it. It was as silly as that. There was, there was no great inspiration or... You that know. is a great inspiration, man. You're downplaying well, the story. That's one of the best stories I've heard about <laughs> naming a company. But we've heard so many, you know, but but you know, the cool the cool startup name story comes from, oh man, we all got on this private jet and went to Vegas and you know, it's those sorts of stories, right? This is, you know, it's very pedestrian. No, it it's it's sweet, it's adorable. Um and Luke to this day um will tell you that He's taking credit for coming up with the name, so or at as least inspiring it as he should. And as a, a father of three, I can uh, greatly appreciate, as I'm sure many of our listeners, uh, that that uh, that story. And I think that you're you you, you should not downplay it. You should uh, be very proud of the naming of the company. So and it worked because we were looking you know, we were looking for an aggressive brand, right? I mean, we figured if we could if we could find a location where we could actually execute this plan, it's a fairly aggressive at the time, you know, it was a fairly aggressive plan. And so that's why it was so funny the way it came about because it's actually exactly what we were looking for, you know. So I, I don't recall seeing last time I went through the facility any motifs to to dinosaurs or carnivores though in in the data center. That's a really good point. We we we, we have uh refrain from doing that you don't have like a that that model t-rex built into the cornerstone of the of the facility you know actually we do kind of have a you know a you know geeky library of of geeky things on the shelves in the in the lobby and i should go dig that dinosaur out of a toy box someplace and put it on the shelf that's a great point that is a good point because now his younger brother's over the dinosaurs too. You know, those of course got handed down to his little brother, and I think Mark is pretty much done with them as well. So I don't think they would be hurt if we uh, 
if we took that to Colabor, I think they would think that's kind of cool. Take full credit for for that tiny tiny little contribution to the uh, to the aesthetics of the of the facility. All right, Sean. So as a fellow entrepreneur, I totally totally feel feel the process and the way I see it, you've got you and Peter though, who are two infrastructure geeks and you've got some business experience and sales experience, but there's, there's more, more to the puzzle. There's, you need a number of other actors in order to make everything work. Um, for those who are listening, who, you know, who are maybe thinking about starting their own company. I think that's, that's also some interesting content that we can share is how did, how did you guys get things up off the ground? So Peter and I, you know, we, we wrote the business plan and as soon as we finished it, we then condensed it down to about a 25 page slide deck. And, and we just started reaching out to, um, folks in the investment community, um, people that, um, had been involved, involved in funding, you know, data center projects, most of whom were contacts, you know, contacts of Peter's, um, and his travels. And, each time we pitched our slide deck, we, you know, let the folks know ahead of time that, you know, we're, we're operations guys, you know, we're, uh, we really believe in this thesis and we know how to run data centers, but we're not finance people and we're not fundraisers. We're not, you know, we're not professional investors. And after hearing our pitch, if you, if you know anyone that you think might be a good fit, you know, please let us know, you know, we're, we're looking for, you know, someone to join us in this adventure who, you know, has that type of experience. And so, you know, we, we, initially we had, you know, fortunately some mostly positive meetings and usually what would happen is, um, the folks, the folks we were meeting with were friendly to us anyways. And so, um, whether they were interested or not, they usually introduced us to two or three other people, um, who thought might be interested in, in, you know, hearing our pitch. And so along that path, um, we pitched to a guy who was a former investor who had been involved directly in the industry. And, and he was actually quite frankly, you know, a little defensive about our thesis, um, and the potential that, you know, maybe some, some of his, his projects may, you know, uh, become obsolete now due, due to our theory on, on density. But I think after he, he had some time to think about it, he called back about a week later and said, Hey, um, I know a guy, great guy, former colleague, you know, uh, equity, private equity investor for close to 15 years, you know, sat on the board, uh, on behalf of his fund with, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, technology and startup companies. And, uh, I think, think you guys should, you know, should meet. He's definitely interested in, um, and he's already made the move away from, you know, life as an investor and, and wanting to be an entrepreneur and looking for an opportunity. So we were introduced to our third partner, Ben Coughlin, who was, you know, our CFO, you know, chairman uh, of our board and, and co-founder. And that was really, uh, that was really a turning point for us. Um, we had up to that point, we had, we had uh, one person up to that point that we had pitched to who was, was really bullish on what we were doing and, and is involved today. He's one of our, our board members, Michael Torres. And so that had given given Peter and I a lot of confidence that, that Michael was interested and he was introducing us to folks, but bringing Ben on board and someone who had sat on the other side of the table, um, and investing in startups, uh, was really, uh, that, that was the catalyst for, you know, getting this whole thing funded. There's, I know other players involved in the organization 
um, early on, I believe Les Pelio was involved, right? And I think you've got yeah. digital realty involved in some capacity as well. Are you willing to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are really you know the other uh, you know huge milestones in you know in growing the business. So you know we met Ben and you know we got together, um, gave him our pitch, and he he understood it. He got it. He liked it. And uh, we decided very quickly, the three of us to, you know, to join up and, you know, start a business and go out and, and find, find the real estate, pull together the funding and, uh, and, and, and really go for it. So with Ben's background and his contacts, um, you know, he had a, he had a Rolodex of folks that we could reach out to who, um, he thought would be interested in, in what we were doing. Um, so as we're out simultaneously, you know, pitching to investors, we're also out touring real estate. And, you know, I'm sure you, I'm sure you know Les's background, but for folks that don't, you know, he's probably, you know, the most successful <laughs> data center developer that no one's ever heard of. And it's, and it's by design. Um, but I think less, I think our facility is probably the 13th data center that he's developed um, right here in Santa Clara. And, uh, you know, I'm surrounded by data centers where, where I'm sitting right now and, you know, less has developed the majority of them. And many of those facilities, you know, have, you know, over you know, the past 20 years been sold to, you know, major telecom companies, um, sold to major, you know, real estate investment trust and so on. He's co-developed a lot of stuff with some of the big publicly traded REITs. But uh, so he's, you know, he's got a ton of experience in, in this industry, to say the least. And so one of the properties that we looked at, you know, it's a unique property we were looking for because with the theory that, you know, density, you know, is is the direction that this industry is going, we don't need a 150,000 square foot building. We didn't need a gigantic building, but we still needed all the power that you would normally have in 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 a in a giant warehouse sized data center. And so fortunately, we <laughs> we uh we caught up with Les and he had a property, you know, this this location here. Um 25,000 square foot building, but he had, they bought the property, they completely redid all the structural, um, just retrofitted this building to be a data center, and they brought nine megawatts to the site. So when we caught up with Les, all all that was already here and existing. It was like a dream come true. Because one of the challenges we had is that we're not going to be able to raise capital to start this business if we have a two-year, it's a two-year process just to, you know, start generating revenue. And so, you know, we walked in with this business plan and, and, you know, it really spoke to Les because he was also, you know, although he was looking at this from a macro level, he also um, saw the power density issue. And he, he and, and from his perspective, it was, uh, you know, it was more an issue of obsolescence. You know, you know, what, what is the value of these buildings if over time, 50% of the space is, is empty white space because all the power and cooling is being used in the other half. And so he, you know, I think a lot of people thought, you know, he was crazy bringing all this power to this little building. And then we showed up with a business plan that, you know, that fit it perfectly. And so it didn't happen overnight, but over time, um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time with, with Les and John at Peleo and Associates, and we decided to team up and, you know, they not only became our our landlord, but they became also an investor. And of course, you know, Les is on the board. So that was, uh, that was tremendous. And so we, we then were just responsible to raise the money really to build, um, 
the interior of the data center. We already we had the power. You know, we had uh, they had already dropped in the first generator, cooling towers. We had a lot of infrastructure here, and it really accelerated um, our ability to construct the first phase and and you know hit the ground running. I remember walking through the building when it was uh, when I had to wear, wear a hard hat, and then came back about a month later to see everything actually fully fully deployed, which was pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, so when at what point did Digital Realty come into the mix? They were, you know, and the folks, you know, you know, it's a it's like every industry, right? Everyone says it, right? Yeah, it's actually a really small community, and everyone knows each other, and uh, and it's and it, it couldn't be more true, you know, with the data center industry, and, and specifically, you know, here in Northern California. So there's a lot of familiarity um, between, you know, our group, between our management team and our board, and you know, the management team at Digital. Um, you know, like we we spoke before, you know, I I worked at Cola.com and, you know, I mean, <laughs> there are countless, you know, alumni from Cola.com that, that, that are currently employed at Digital and, and that certainly have been in the past. So, and of course, Les, you know, has done a lot of business with uh, with Digital Realty. So, you know, we had, we had funded the business with the first phase and it was, you know, Pelio and Associates and a, a list of private investors. Um, and when it came time uh, to fund round two, um, you know the, the folks at the folks at Digital were well aware. I mean, they, some of those guys were coming by and saying hi during construction. The same walking through with hard hats, just like you had done, right? I mean, um, they're friends. Uh, but then by by the time the second round of funding came around, you know, we'd won some deals, and some of those deals were open RFPs that you know everyone was everyone was competing for. Um, and so, you know, they were aware that we had won some deals and they, and they understood the parameters and why, why we won them. And, uh, so I, I think, uh, between the familiarity and, and also just that it was, it was interesting, it was an interesting thesis and we, we seemed to be gaining traction in what would seemingly be an impossible, <laughs> impossible scenario, and, you know, David and Goliath sort of scenario. And so, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to speak to the investment team there to get, you know, their, official take on it, but it was, it was actually, um, it was seemed, it just was a very natural, uh, progression at the time, um, meeting with them, you know, discussing, you know, what we were doing and where we wanted to go. And when they came along in that second round of funding, it just, it, it really opened up the floodgates for us as far as sales were concerned. Um, and just the process because, you know, ironically they, they knew us better than the market knew us. Um, and so when all of a sudden, you know, our website showed them as as an investor in the business, it really um, it changed the conversation in pre-sales about who are you guys and how do we know you're going to be around? And um, because with less behind us, I think anyone internally in the industry would know that's a pretty safe bet. But for, you know, for your typical, you know, colo buyer, you know, they, they don't know they don't know who Pelio and Associates is. So having digital's name there just really, really changed the game for us. Right on. And that's, that is a, a great story. And as a fellow entrepreneur, I know just how flipping hard it is, uh, and the roller coaster <laughs> ride that you were on. So I'm hats off to you, man, for surviving and making it and being successful and now profitable, um, over the last, how long has it been? Six years now? You know, we, it, it we funded the business and and took the keys, you know, to this building um, in July of 13. 
And it took us two years up to that point. It took us two years to 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 make that happen. It was a two year journey. Um, you know, writing the plan, you know, finding Ben <laughs> and you know, and we and you know, we pitched this plan, I mean, countless times. So yeah, it was it, it was it was a two year journey. And then luckily, you know, catching up with Les and John and um, you know, convincing them that, you know, we were the right tenant for this building. So one of the questions that I have for you that listeners may be thinking is you have a super dense facility. Is there a minimum threshold? Do you guys take clients who need 2KW or 5KW a cabinet, or are you strictly going after uh, those customers that are going as dense as possible? Yeah, there's a minimum. You know, our minimum at this point is 10KW per rack. So minimum commit of 10KW. Uh, and it, it just wouldn't make sense, um, you know, to take on clients with a lower requirement because their because their options, quite frankly, if you actually have a deployment that's using, you know, uh, say two to five kW, you know, your your options are huge, right? There's a, there's there's a ton of options out there. Um, but what we do find is that we do we do see businesses who have thought five years, ten years down the road, and they're looking they're looking at their roadmap, right? Um, it's like the previous conversation, you know, how, how do you look at Moore's law and go to the investment committee and say, I think we need to start not only building for today's density, I think we need to start planning for, you know, a future proof roadmap for the future, but actually some IT, uh, staffs and, 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 you know, forward thinking companies, they actually, they actually do have those conversations and they do think about it. So what's interesting is we'll, we'll see people and we've already seen it. Well, they'll come in here and say, look, you know, minimum commit is 10. That's fine. We'll probably come in here in the first year. We're probably going to use an average of eight, but we want to make sure that when we refresh, you know, we, we're going to be, we, predict will be at 12. So, you know, if, if people can, you know, can see the writing on the wall, they'll come in here and deploy at a lower density, knowing that uh, it'll pay off in the long run to have the headroom to be able to grow up in those racks as, as time goes on. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about what you've got going on in Santa Clara right now? Are you guys going to be expanding elsewhere? Are you guys looking at at, at future properties? We are. We definitely are um, locally here in this in this same market, um, but our you know our our plan all along our original original business plan that few people read but uh, many saw the slide deck. <laughs> but uh, you know the, the concept at the time was you know let's grow out of the Bay Area. We figured you know the Bay Area could easily handle a few of these data centers. So if there was one in San Francisco or near um, one in the East Bay. And you know, one in Silicon Valley that would probably uh, work real well. And then uh, we really like the idea of putting um, putting one in Reno for DR type purposes, continuity purposes. Um, now, well, actually, someone beat beat us to uh, beat us right. to Reno. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think what's uh, but, funny is I remember talking with you about Reno a long time ago, and we were talking about. Going there, I I have been talking about Reno for a long time, wondering why the heck it is that no one is deploying out there. I even remember speaking with a couple of digital executives about why they're not going out there, and they simply said it's not a tier one market and there's not existing demand sitting there. So you have to convince people 
to go there. And I was like, well, it's not that hard of a sale to convince someone to, to go there for a variety of reasons, which we don't have to get into right now, but switch. Yeah, I I totally, I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, if, if people are going to go to Sacramento, um, why wouldn't they just take one step further and go to Reno? Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know officially what the percentage of, you know, DevOps, network engineer, system administrator types are that ski or snowboard, but I can tell you it's a high percentage. <laughs> and right. uh, I, don't, I don't think that they would, uh, I don't think they would mind going to Reno rather than Vegas at all. Right. Um, where, you, where you could also have the same, you know, some of the same luxuries as Vegas as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So from a connectivity perspective as well, the, the strategy that you guys have is also, I think, a little bit unique to most of the players in the game. Could you briefly describe that? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that makes a small high density data center, you know, within a, within an urban uh, core more viable now than it would have been uh, earlier is, you know, the cost of transit, the cost of dark fiber, the the cost of, you know, just, uh, you know, getting a AWS direct connect, all, all these things are so affordable now. Uh, it's, it's really shocking if you, you know, if you you just look even 15 years ago at the cost of communications related to, you know, web and it, and, and now you can, you can do so much on a budget. So that was kind of, that was part of our thesis was that we don't have to be, um, we don't have to be, and the client doesn't have to be at the major peering point directly in those low density racks. They can, they can deploy in a high density location. That's a few miles away. And you've got any manner of um, direct connect, uh, you know, solutions that that as far as latency and number of hops, it looks as if you're sitting right there in the in the you know the main peering hub anyway. And so that was you know we felt like that was that was part of what would be attractive, and we've seen it happen where we we have clients so they will keep some infrastructure at PAX or you know at Eleven Great Oaks. Um, but they'll they'll sling dark fiber into Colivore or just a just you know whatever whatever it is they need you know direct connect ten gig one gig whatever it is and uh, and then they they can they can build out densely here um, and still have you know all the amenities connectivity wise that that they need and so that that's been a, that's been a real you know all, all of the telecom options now um, is just really awesome in you know. In pushing this model, the uh, the tethering model, as it's called, that I learned, uh, I learned there was actually a name from it. I, when I was working at QTS, I, I did a lot of big deals leveraging just that simple concept because it dawned on me a lot of these companies that were paying a premium to be inside these carrier hotels and internet exchanges didn't need to have all of their infrastructure there that they could keep their mm-hmm. their core node there. And as I was explaining to to Bill Norton, uh, aka Doctor Peering, who's now with Console. Yeah. Um, you know what, what I was doing and we were just kind of having lunch and dinner. He's good. Yeah. 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 That, that's called tethering. And I was like, Oh, well I've, I've been doing that for a while. And he's like, yeah, there's a name for it. <laughs> um, and Bill will actually be coming on to, to do an interview here in the next couple of weeks as well. But, um, Oh yeah. You've got it. You've got to interview him for sure. Yeah. He's got some very fun stories about the the history of Equinix and, and the new venture that he's a part of. Are you guys leveraging console in any way today? Um, not yet. We certainly are aware of it and we've, you know, we've certainly, you know, sat with, with Bill and discussed it. And I mean, I mean, 
Bill was one of those folks, you know, when, when we were just writing the business plan, just getting started, you know, Peter and I did sort of, you know, peer interview type of, you know, discussions with folks just, just to get, you know, just to get their take on our thesis and make sure we weren't, you know, acting in a, in a vacuum somehow. And he was, he was one of the, one of the people, you know, Peter and Bill know each other really well. I, you know, I hadn't gotten to know him until, until that point, but, uh, you know, man, just some really fun conversations. So what, one of the things I do want to mention, one of the things that I greatly appreciate, Sean, when we met and when, when I was going through the facility is the fact that you guys actually come at it from the client point of view. You understand that story. And I think how you've kind of designed the operational side of your business, the client facing side of your business speaks to that. Even the aesthetics, when you walk in, it's all designed for a customer who is going to be spending time inside the facility and having a respect for that. And it's not, hey, we're going to have a gym and we're going to have all these fancy fancy things. It's we're just going to make it a comfortable place where someone can hang out and get some work done. That's going to have to spend time in the facility. One of the other things that, and, and I want to be mindful of, of our time here, but one of the other things I'd love to have you speak to is just the, the specific cooling mechanisms that you've deployed inside the facility. Is that something that you're, you're willing to speak to? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, and I, and I, and I appreciate uh, the fact that you've been here and you kind of, you get, you get what we were trying to do and you, you know, we didn't do anything earth shattering, but it really is, it really is based on the end user's experience. It's not, it's not, it's not built to impress the CEO. It's, it's built to impress the guys or at least make them comfortable. They're, they're going to be here, um, you know, a lot of times when they don't want to be. So um, thank you for that because not everyone gets it, but but the people that um, I think I think the people that spend enough time in these facilities they notice just that there's some subtle things that we've done differently that um, it's not typical in a in a cola facility. But yeah, speaking to uh, the cooling plant, so we wanted we wanted to find a way to bring 20 kW to the market. We wanted something that would scale beyond that. But at the time, and this you know we're you know we're, we're working on this plan and and getting that thing funded in, you know, 2012, 2013. And, and to some, you know, uh, that we pitched it to, they, you know, even, even 20 seemed like, you know, really outlandish. But we did a lot of research and I had always been, something that really had stuck in my head is something that um, the data, data center pulse group, you know, did a chill off in, you know, I think it was the 06, 07, 08 timeframe. They did a couple of them, but that's the first time I really, uh, really got to see the rear door heat exchangers in action, and uh, and the performance was just it was it was literally off the charts compared to any of the other you know cooling systems that they tested. So when when Peter and I got further along uh, with this plan, we started researching what we would actually deploy. Um, you know, we looked at we looked at all the products that are out there on the market, and we chose. The product that we felt was the most industrial strength, because you know, in a cola facility, you've got you've got a lot of people coming and going and, and using the facility. If this were a managed hosting business where only our staff was um, working in the facility, we we might have we might have done something different. So really, what we're running is it's you know it, we're running rear door heat exchangers, which are essentially radiators that are embedded in the back door of the server cabinet. Um, and so rather than a chilled water loop running through computer room air conditioners that are, you know, lining the outside of, you know, the, of the room of the data hall, um, we're running, we're running that, uh, chilled water, if you will, um, 
to each of the each of the radiators on the back door of the cabinet. The key thing there too that I also appreciate is it's not the fa- it's not a matter of you having to steal. So so let me frame that. In some data centers, they'll claim that they can do the same densities that you do as well, right? And you know we can do no problem. We can do twenty, thirty, forty kW rack, um, and they don't right. have any kind of new or advanced cooling. And to most customers, they don't fully understand and realize that, yes, though, that might be possible that they can push that much power into a cabinet, but it's not going to be something that can do consistently across multiple cabinets. So you couldn't right. fill the entire data, data hall with cabinets that are at 10, 20, 30, 40 kW rack. You could only fill a handful, and there would have to be a lot of dead space to steal the available cooling from other areas of, of the floor and push it over into that region or, or that section um, for cooling. Whereas what you've designed is the capability and the ability to push that kind of density in every single cabinet on the entire data hall and in, inside the entire right. suite. Yeah. And that was, and that was, that was a huge part of the, the, you know, the specification when we started working with, with, with our mechanical contractors that this has got to be, something that we can do at warehouse scale it has to be wall to wall and with with this this cooling system here um it's makes that very achievable and essentially what it is really what what a rear door heat exchanger really does is it it takes a, it takes the concept of hot aisle containment and essentially narrows down what would be an entire aisle of you know 100 plus degree air and it now narrows it down from the back of the server to the back door of the cabinet. So what happens is the air that blows out now into what would be the hot aisle is actually slightly cooler than the ambient temperature in the room. And so for the folks working in the data center, um, it, it makes it far more comfortable. Um, and, it's, and it's outrageously efficient. Moving beyond the, the facility and the data center, I have a question for you because a lot of the listeners are actually folks who are relatively new to the industry. So if you're mm-hmm. speaking to someone who's coming into the data center space from maybe the hardware industry or the telecommunications industry or even uh, the managed services space, what what advice would you give someone who's relatively new, who's now working for Colovore or, or any data center company for that matter? Yeah, my biggest piece of advice is to be prepared to collaborate. You know, there's this there's this concept, this perception of this the, the the lone wolf IT or data center tech who's you know gonna gonna go in there and finish a job, solve a problem, a deployment, whatever whatever it may be, and that they're going to they're going to go to school, they're going to study, they're going to learn their um, whatever their skill set is, whether they're, whether they're a network engineer or system administrator or a, a rack and stack technician, whatever it might be, the idea that you're going to go in, you're going to do your work and you're going to get out and and you're done. It doesn't work that way. And everybody in each of those, each of those buckets or silos has got to be prepared to collaborate, troubleshoot, communicate, you know, and have each other's back when you're, when you're working in a, in a data center on any project. And the folks that come in with, you know, the alpha male, you know, type ego, the my way or the highway approach, you know, they don't last very long because there are a lot of times there are many ways to solve a problem. There's many ways to, to get to a solution. 
And you've got to be open-minded and you've got to be, be willing to think outside the box. And so I, that would, you know, so coming in just with, a, with, with your skills, that's great. But if you don't have the people skills and the appreciation to work with, you know, all manner of people of all various skill sets, some are vendors, some are um, coworkers. If, you, if you're not ready to do that, then you should really consider something else, uh, you know, for a career. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I always found it interesting going to AFCOM events and hearing so many facilities managers and, and um, just people on the facility side of the house who are so opinionated about one specific type of technology uh, that, mm-hmm. that they happen to be familiar with and that they've used. And yep. I, I, I watched two facilities managers almost come to blows about me simply, I asked a simple question to one gentleman which was, which do you think is more efficient, a raised floor or slab floor? And he started to answer and someone who's sitting behind him chimed in and was like, you're an idiot. What are you talking about? You you know, no, you're wrong. Right. And the net net that I gained out of that is whatever your experience is with is what you're likely going to think is the best, but that doesn't mean that it's the only option available, right? There's, as you just pointed out, there's lots of ways to skin the cat um, and be open-minded about other solutions and other ways to, yeah. to go about making it happen. Yeah. And, and, and part of the fun is learning how other people do things. So if, you know, because, and, and so just using that simple example right there, some companies that started building data centers in the dot-com era standardize on raised floor, other standards standardize on slab, but you can be successful, especially then under, you know, with the densities and, and the workloads and things, you could be, you could be successful either way. It just depends on what makes sense for your business. Uh, for me, the decision to go slab over raised floor um, would be more about safety than it would be about cooling performance. You know, if you're running a 24 seven colo facility where your clients come and go 24 um, seven, having a data center on a slab with everything run overhead, um, you've just eliminated a huge trip and fall hazard. Um, you know, we, we run a, ra- a, a facility with a raised floor, but it's not an air plenum. So the guy who is immediately, you know, denouncing raised floors, you know, he, he does, he, he wouldn't understand how, how we're using this cooling system. So we have, we have chilled water running under the floor, but, but we, but we don't use it as an air plenum. Um, but because we, because we had to house that piping somewhere, we, we now deal with, you know, the the safety concerns of having potentially a floor tile that someone could step through, and it's just something you manage. You know, so you can, you know, the I, I still think it goes back to focusing on the end user and not not the facility. You know, if you build your facility and your and your and your business plan around the people that are going to use it, there's a lot of ways you can present it. Um, but if it's presented in a way that they find useful, that's 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 the biggest issue. So, Sean, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. I have one last question for you, and I think I already know the answer, but do you love data centers? I do, but I will tell you, you might, you might be able to tell from many of my, uh, my answers here today that I love some more than others. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually, I've never looked at it from that perspective, but I, I can't say I disagree. I can't say I disagree with that statement. Um, how can people find you and, and learn more about Colivore? You can always find us at 
colavore.com and there's an easy way to uh, request info from the website. And uh, of course, if you can correctly spell my last name on LinkedIn, you'll quickly find me. And how, how do we correctly spell your last name on LinkedIn? I'm going to have this in the show notes and have, have a lot of links to the some of the things that we talked about in the, in the conversation today. Um, but for those who are listening and, and driving right now and they, they want to quickly dig it up, what? how do people find you? What's your last name? Sure. How do you spell your last name? And the first name, name too is, is an important one because you spell it, you spell that's it right. the Irish way, correctly. which is, which is the that's correct right. So first name is Sean, S-E-A-N, and the last name is Holtznecht, and that is spelled just like it sounds. It's H-O-L-Z-K-N-E-C-H-T. Well, thank you again, Sean. Greatly appreciate it. Stay away from the uh, the Alaskan moose and have yourself a beautiful day. You bet. You too, Sean. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.